Today we begin a new series, a sermon series that at this point I suspect will take us a number of months to work through. The Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters, and it's not, even though it's the shortest of the four Gospels, uh, there's still so much packed into this, and we don't want to hurry through it. And I'm going to say a little bit more about it in just a moment. But before I even pray or make a few introductory comments about the book, I just want to read the first eight verses, and you follow along, please, as we begin the gospel according to Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, as we begin this record of the life and ministry of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, as Mark introduces him to us here today. We ask that your Holy Spirit would attend the preaching and teaching and reading of this gospel in the same way that the Holy Spirit attended and empowered and moved through the preaching of John the Baptist. We are people like those who heard uh, that great prophet, John, we are in need of your touch upon our lives. Convict our hearts of our sin. Lead us to that place of humble repentance and sweet, uh, sweet faith and trust in you where we experience the powerful and freeing forgiveness that comes through your mercy. And we ask that you would prepare our hearts in the way that you were preparing the hearts of those listeners in the days of Christ to see Him and receive Him. Prepare our hearts that they may be ready for Jesus Christ in His kingship, in His lordship, and in His personal care for us. Again, I ask, Heavenly Father, that You would minister grace to every person in this room. The needs that are represented here by this assembly are so far beyond our human capacity to meet them and, and bless and comfort and heal and restore. But you, God, are able to do all of that work. So would you please do it in this hour that we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't you long to hear some good news? I think that most of us, frankly, are a little worn out with what appears in the news day after day after day. And whether it be uh, in the course of the Kavanaugh confirmation or the various protests around the country, the calls from political figures and individuals to fight for whatever 
per, whatever beliefs we are persuaded of and some of the techniques that are being employed now are a little disturbing in and of themselves or we see the headlines related to the catastrophic losses resulting from uh, Florence and now Michael. Many of us don't even want to turn on the news or boot up the computer and, and look at a, a website, do we? And that's for good reason. And partly because for as long as the news has really been big business, you've heard this phrase as I have, if it bleeds, it leads. And so the news tends to go toward the things that would shock us or amaze us or even put us in a place of, of fear and awe in the hopes that we'll stay tuned. Because at the end of the day, if you stay tuned, then when those commercial breaks come in and the big bucks that have gone into advertising, I mean, the real desire is simply that you'll get up off the couch and go buy whatever product they've advertised. It's not really about the news. It's about the bottom line, right? And we get that. Yet there's something in us that longs to know. We want to be informed. We want to have an idea of what's going on in our world. And we hear lots of adjectives these days used to describe the news. Everything from biased and sensational to overhyped. Even the word fake has appeared uh, recently. And some would describe it as liberal and some would describe it as right-wing. There's odd news and there's weird news. And if you Googled this afternoon, things like that, funny news, strange news, I mean, you would see some really remarkable uh, headlines. And, and I, I have to confess to you that when I get a little stressed with the regular news, that's where I tend to go. I need some good laughs or I need to be amazed in a little different way that doesn't have any political weight to it or any economic force in it. I mean, I, I just want to be diverted for, for a little bit. And so that's where even strange news has, has a place. But you know, if you think honestly of what's going on in your heart, some of what makes this so difficult for us at this moment and hard to bear is that we often feel powerless, don't we, to do anything with the news. And furthermore, sometimes it reinforces that sense of hopelessness that can just grip our souls. What really are we to do in this world with the way that it is? Well, today, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we begin a study in one of four books in the New Testament. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the New Testament includes four different books that have the word gospel included in it. And, and I'm going to explain that in just a moment, but these are actually the very personal and specific accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Most of you have probably heard this, but some of you may be brand new to that word, the gospel, or as it's used in this sense. And so these four books, one written by a man named Matthew, who was an actual disciple of Jesus Christ and apostle, all right? So there's Matthew's gospel. That's the first one. Uh, that you would encounter if you came into the New Testament. The second one is the gospel according to Mark. Now, he was not one of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus, but he was alive during the life and ministry of Jesus. And I'm going to note some things there in a second. And he was a follower, a very faithful follower of Jesus, but he's not one of the 12. And then there's Luke. Luke is the third gospel. Again, Luke is not one of the 12 disciples. So if somebody ever asks you to list off the 12 disciples, don't give them Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and then go to John. And John's the fourth gospel. He was one of the 12 disciples. Luke's actually a medical doctor. And he traveled with some of the early apostles and witnessed firsthand mighty things that were going on. He actually wrote the book of Acts as well. 
So we'll save all that for another time. Well, Mark is the second of the four. And Mark has uh, been used of God uh, to write a very specific, uh, it's intense, it's fast-moving uh, he includes details in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that none of the other three uh, include. And that doesn't make it a better gospel. I'm just trying to give you a little feel. There's a little different uh, touch of his personality on this. Mark, who was actually closely associated with the apostle Peter, um, writes probably having drawn upon much of the, the eyewitness account that Peter gave, those firsthand stories. He was also the son of a mother who's mentioned a couple of times uh, in the scriptures, who seems to have been a wealthy woman of Jerusalem and likely hosted Jesus and the disciples on a number of occasions. We are not fully sure of when and and how all that happened, but there are a few little things, and in time, we'll have an opportunity to to come to those. So as a young man, uh, it's very likely that as his mother hosted those things, he was present for some of those meetings. Can you imagine being a young guy and Jesus and his 12 disciples come into your house and spend time there uh, under, your, under your mom's roof? I mean, what an opportunity to see and listen and hear. He was also the younger cousin of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is one of the apostolic missionaries that you read about in the book of Acts. Again, Barnabas is not one of the 12, but he's a very prominent figure, a man on whom uh, the Spirit of God rested and his preaching ministry and his evangelistic and church ministry, uh, church planting ministry is well documented in the book of Acts. He's the older cousin of Mark. And Mark had an opportunity to travel with Barnabas and the Apostle Paul for a time. And uh, there were some ups and downs. And again, I think in the course of this series, we'll have an opportunity to do a little more work on Mark's biography, but that's not for today. But all of that experience, all of those years of being in the presence of Christ or near to him or associating with apostles like Peter and Paul and men like Barnabas shaped him so that when he writes this letter it's intent or writes this gospel it's intensely personal to him what's interesting to me is that he is writing to a broad audience he's not writing just to Jewish people he's actually writing uh, to all those who would hear and their culture in the mid-first century, uh, was much like ours. And so the people that he's writing to were full of some of the same fears and frustrations that many of us deal with. In the same way that you probably struggle to make sense uh, of what your nation and what this culture and what this current day and age is really about. What are our leaders up to? Where is our nation headed? These are the kinds of questions that, that Mark's audience was wrestling with. And it's interesting to me that his opening sentence for them uses the word gospel. Did you know that the word gospel at its essence means good news? Good news. So this is not just kind of happenstance that Mark begins his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with that word gospel. No, I think it is intended not just by Mark as a very committed religious uh, leader of his day, but ultimately by God the Holy Spirit who inspired this word, breathed it out through Mark that it might be a message, a timeless message for people just like his audience and just like us who are saying, what do I make of this world we live in? It's news 
that has transformed the life and the lives of thousands of others. And Mark is recording some of the remarkable moments when Jesus himself spoke to people, preached to them, taught them, touched them, healed them, and he's doing it in a way that all of us can find ourselves in these stories and know that the living God has the same kind of love and compassion and earnest purpose to save us from this broken world we live in and to save us ultimately from our sins. So Mark wants to lead us into an intensely personal encounter with Jesus Christ in order that we too might be transformed. And this, I am confident, is part of what he means when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ. So let's look at that a little more closely. Now, if you want to kind of jot some notes down and and try to make a little framework for how these verses come together, uh, I'm going to include some things there that you can jot down if you want, all right? Somebody wants to be a part of the children's ministry, right? Mark announces the good news, verse 1. Now look at this with me, please. And Mark is going to note, first of all, the nature of what he's writing. That's what I mean by this account. It's Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. But notice he begins with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. We've already touched on just briefly what the word gospel means. And and then there's another little word, of, that is a little bit of a deal. And and I'm going to explain to you why. Now, first of all, what I want you to to know, and and after today, I just want you to think of these terms interchangeably. Gospel is good news. Good news, another word for that would be gospel. So if you ever end up in one of those trivia games where somebody asks for synonyms or words that mean certain things, I mean, this, who knows, this might win a game for you at some point, but it's more than that. And this is where that little preposition of uh, indicates a couple of things for us in this passage. First of all, it's good news about Jesus Christ, because Mark's going to tell you all about his life, his ministry. He's going to give you a sampling of some of his sermons and teaching, but it's also good news from Jesus One of the really beautiful things about the Gospels, all four of them include this, and some of you may actually have a red-letter edition of the Bible. I was with a friend this week, and I gave him a copy of the Scriptures, and he had never seen red-letter print before. And so we just had a little brief conversation about that. And he was really intrigued by the fact that the red letters are the words of Jesus. Well, Mark includes some of the words of Jesus. And as you read them, you you need to receive them personally. Because Jesus is speaking to you through this word. That's why it's been preserved for us. So the gospel, what what kind of book is this? It's a book of good news. Now, he's also telling us about the main character of this account. And he puts it right out there. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, all three of those one's a name and two are titles, but all three of these things are really important. So let me just give you a little brief summary. Did you know that Jesus is the name of God's son? My name is Danny. My wife's name is Kristen. My son's name is Seth. Those names kind of identify us, don't they? Um, And we're all trying to learn names. I jumped in this morning, and I won't say who it was, but uh, one family came in, and, and I said, hey, and I used the wrong name. That was one of those awkward moments. But, you know, we have them here, and we're going to have them for a while until we all finally get really well acquainted. 
Well, this is the name of God's Son. Do you know it's the name that God the Father chose for him? You'd have to go to another gospel in Matthew 1, where God reveals uh, to the earthly father, Joseph, uh, the name that he should select, but it's a name that means Yahweh or Jehovah, if you've heard that term before, God Almighty himself. It's a testimony to this truth. Yahweh certainly saves. Jesus is the name given to the Son of God. It's a name that in itself is a testimony to His power to save. Now, the second word uh, after the, the name Jesus is Christ. You know, that's not a name. It's actually a title. Um, so it, it, if, uh, if you encounter this, you need to be thinking it's a title that communicates something really important. What does it communicate? Well, as a title of God's Son, it's, it's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament title of Messiah. Well, what's Messiah? Some of you might say, well, that's new to me. Never really encountered that before. Well, Messiah and Christ are two terms that simply mean anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever you encounter the word Messiah, it's speaking of one who would come, especially anointed one. There are other characters in the Old Testament who are anointed of God. There are prophets, there are kings, there are all kinds of servants of God who are anointed of God for special moments of ministry. But when it speaks of Messiah, it's speaking of one individual in particular that God promised from long ago who would come and he would be the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. He'd be all of those wrapped up into one. So when Mark uses this title, Christ, every Jew who's reading this will perk up immediately and begin to think back to Old Testament prophecies. And a lot of the Romans and Greeks even had enough religious knowledge to understand the term itself means anointed one. And many of them would be saying, anointed by God for what? And that's part of what the gospel tells us. Anointed for a life of service and ministry. Anointed ultimately to be the, the one and only sacrifice for the sins of the world. Anointed by God to rise from the dead and establish a kingdom that will never have an end. Anointed of God. That's the significance of the title Christ. Now the third part, and this is also a title... Uh, that Mark puts here in verse 1 is the Son of God. Now, it's a significant title. It's not just communicating his relationship to God the Father, and it, although it does. But it also has reference uh, to uh, his role of ministry. And this term is going to be used, and I won't go into great detail at this point, but just... As we work through Mark and as you begin to read it on, on your own, and I hope you will do that, um, pay attention to the times that you see the Son of God or some variation of it. An example would be in verse 11. We didn't read all, all the way to this point. But after Jesus is baptized, Mark says that the heavens actually are torn open and a voice from heaven and it's God the Father, speaks in testimony over this one and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's a remarkable moment. 
This title becomes a little bit of a theme throughout the book of Mark that we need to pay attention to and actually come to terms with, what do I do with this title? What do I do with this Son of God? And it really culminates at the end of the book, um, and, and there are a couple of other references to it um, in, in the middle. Oh, interesting. I'll just go ahead and throw this out. You'll have to wait until we get to chapters 3 and 5, but do you know who uses that first reference, Son of God, in chapter 3.11? Or Son of the Most High in, verses, in chapter 5 or 7? If you look there real quickly, you'll actually find those are demonic powers. Interesting that God would bring them forward as witnesses. They know exactly who He is. They stand in fear of the kind of authority that He brings into this world and even into that little region where they're trying to work their, their darkness. But ultimately... This title, the Son of God, appears at a climactic moment. And you know who bears that witness in chapter 15, verse 39? It's not one of the religious leaders of the day. It's not even one of the disciples who followed Jesus through the three years of his earthly ministry. It's actually a Roman centurion who was part of that Roman guard stationed at the cross the day Jesus was crucified. And as he witnesses everything that happens on that particular day of Christ's death, Darkness in the middle of the day, a great earthquake, cries of the Christ from, from the cross, sees the people have assembled, assembled, the religious leaders mocking Jesus, disciples, uh, some hanging nearby like John, women who are grieving the death of this, of, of this beloved prophet and Messiah. As he witnesses all of this and sees Jesus die, he says, truly, this was the Son of God. And that's a really significant point in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll come to that in time. So we need to pay attention to it, and as we encounter that phrase, we all need to be asking, who is this one? And if he is who he says he is, and if he is who Mark reveals him to be, then what does that mean for me? What does it mean about the way I live my life? What does it mean about the way I give my precious time? Uh, before my hour of death. So these are significant truths about Jesus that Mark wants us to know. Now just to give you a big, broad, uh, thematic idea, some of you uh, like to have all of this organized and categorized, and I found this very helpful. Any of you have an ESV study Bible? Um, several of you. It's a, it's a really good one. I would encourage you, if you're ever looking for a study Bible, that would be one of the ones I would say is really helpful. Uh, and I often refer to it, as I did even in some of the preparation for uh, this series in the Gospel of Mark. And I really appreciated one little summary statement that, that kind of helps us know what is Mark really seeking to do. And the authors of this, of this study note write, the ultimate purpose and theme of Mark is to present and defend Jesus' universal call to discipleship. Universal. Wasn't just for the 12, wasn't just for others like Mark who were closely associated. It's for you and me. Mark returns often to this theme, and as the narrative unfolds, he categorizes his main audience as either followers or opponents of Jesus. And the outline demonstrates that Mark's central effort in presenting and supporting this call is to narrate the identity and teaching of Jesus. And now here's the second part of the quotation. Discipleship for Mark is essentially a relationship with Jesus. And, and please listen to, the, to this. Not 
merely following a certain code of conduct. That's where a lot of us get hung up, isn't it? We think that being a Christian is just about the do's and the don'ts. The do's and don'ts have a place. Commands of God are given for a purpose, but they are ultimately secondary and flow out of the relationship with God himself. That's where Mark wants all of us to go, into a personal relationship with Jesus. I continue reading. Not merely following a certain code of conduct, fellowship with Jesus marks the heart of the disciple's life. And this fellowship includes trusting him, confessing him, taking note of his conduct, following his teaching, and being shaped by a relationship to him. Pause for a moment here and ask, what do you think is the single greatest shaping influence of your life at this moment? Now think, okay? You don't have to speak it out loud. I won't ask for a show of hands or any, any volunteer, although that'd be fascinating, wouldn't it, if we were really honest at this moment? Some of it would be humorous, some of it would be scary, some of it would be shocking, some of it would be intriguing. We'd say, I've never even thought of that before. That has no shaping influence on my soul. But you're shaped by something. And if you think hard enough and you go beneath the surface uh, of maybe what your first thought is and say, what's the thought beneath the thought? You're probably going to get to something like this. I want security. I just want to be secure. And the security, that desire for it, is a shaping influence so that You are careful about who you let into your life. Maybe you you desire that security now because you suffered a really deep relational wound at some point. And you said to yourself, that pain was so great, I will never let anybody do that to me again. And so now you've built a little bit of a fortress around your soul. And you put people through your own background check. And you are the gatekeeper and determine whether they get close to you or not because security is is actually the shaping influence. You say, "Mm, that's not mine. Maybe it's a desire for fulfillment, completeness. You just had this gnawing emptiness through the years. It's like life is good, but... I think it could be better. And it's not that you've experienced devastation and loss and deep suffering. It's just that there's kind of this empty place. And so you keep looking for something to to fulfill it. And so your life is marked by a series of, of really great experiences. I admire those families who, who methodically and systematically, you know, check off in, in our environment out here, you know, the great national parks. I mean, how, how many are there within today's drive? I feel such great frustration that, that I've only lived here a year and a half, and if my lifespan is, you know, relatively normal, and I live to be, you know, somewhere 75, 80, may, maybe a little bit beyond, there's just not enough time to get to all these great places. Some of you have been just on this mission year after year, and you know, you know when, when school lets out and, and vacation season starts, man, you're there, you're there, you're there. 
But as great as it, those experiences have been, if you were really honest at this particular moment, and maybe it's not hard for you to be honest, you say, that's great, but it hasn't really filled that empty place. I'm looking for some sense of fulfillment. And so it may be a great vacation. It may be a great, uh, it may be a great quest that you have engaged in in the workplace, advancing or establishing your own business or reaching a place of financial independence. I don't know what form it takes, but, but that longing for fulfillment is a life shaper for you. Part of the reason that Mark uses the term good news about Jesus and from Jesus is that he knows when you meet Jesus Christ in the personal way that he's met him, that the disciples met him, that hundreds and thousands of others met him, your quest to be full, to find completeness or to find security or whatever is, you know, that, that longing and craving underneath the surface, it, it'll be met. And Jesus himself will preach and teach in a way where he invites people to come to him with all kinds of needs. And Mark's gospel is full of stories of Jesus healing the sick, of healing the lame, uh, of delivering the demon oppressed. He will say things to people like you and me who are so broken, so confused, so in such turmoil, they don't know what to do. But he will say things like this to the leper, be clean. And restore him physically so that he can re-enter society and be a part of, of the, the worship and service and living that he longs to. He'll say to a sinful paralytic, not just pick up your bed and walk, but actually say, your sins are forgiven. And when that man picks up his bed and walks away, the greatest joy of his heart ultimately will be not that he can walk again, but that he's, his soul has been cleansed of sin, that he's been forgiven all of that wrong that he's done against God. He'll say to a woman with a chronic disease, be healed, and she is. He'll say to weary disciples who've spent themselves in ministry and they're just worn out, come away and rest a while. It's amazing when you begin to look at all the conversations that Mark includes in the gospel that Jesus had with people. These are people just like you and me, and his touch upon their lives, his words to them, his leadership and his love are extraordinary. There's just no one else like Jesus. And you know, when you enter a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not that you stop taking vacations to really awesome national parks. It's just that you go into those national parks, and because your soul is in right relationship with your Creator, they're actually better than they were before. Now, hear, hear my heart on this. When I say that, you know, going into Zion the first time, and, and some of you have been there so much, you, it's still awesome, but it's not like the first time, is it? I mean, but when I drove in there for the first time this past year, I mean, it was like a worship experience. But even saying that, it's not like a Sunday worship experience. So, so don't, don't skip this to go down there, all right? <laughs> At least not very often. I know sometimes vacations take you out of town on weekends, and there's a place and time for that. And I also know that people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ go into a place like that and go, unbelievable. And, and they might even have a bit of a spiritual experience. And that's true because they've, they've encountered the creative power of the living God, whether they recognize that or not. 
So again, a right relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't mean you stop taking vacations or you stop advancing, seeking to advance your career or better your life. It just means because you're in right relationship with him, all of that finds its proper place in perspective. And you know at the end of the day, a great vacation or a job promotion or a raise or whatever it is that you long for isn't the thing that satisfies. Those are just good gifts that come from the all-satisfying God. That's what Jesus does. And that's why Mark says this, this is the good news. Now, very quickly, um, beyond this question, I should have put that up earlier. Single greatest shaping influence of your life. Look at, look at the, the text again. Now, I know I spent a lot of time on verse 1, and we're, we're going to go rather quickly through verses 2 through 8 here. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. What's this all about? Well, actually, Mark is about to introduce John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the specially chosen messenger by God who prepares the way for Jesus Christ. Now, as God's special messenger, he is the one that the prophet Isaiah foretold. Now, here's a little interesting thing to me. And, and I want to take time just to make sure that there's no significant doubt or fear or worry that comes out of it. Did you know that verse 2 is actually a quotation from Malachi? Malachi is an Old Testament prophet, and I included the reference there on the screen so you would know it when, when Mark actually says or writes down this quotation, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He's actually quoting Malachi 3, verse 1. But he just said... Uh, Isaiah prophesied, right? What's he doing? Well, he does quote Isaiah. That actually comes in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You know, I, I don't know the full answer for this, but it is interesting to me that this is not the only place in Scripture where a writer will say, you know, in this case, I'm quoting Isaiah, and then include a second quotation from another source or an Old Testament passage uh, where you would read in 2 Chronicles 36, 21 to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah uh, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths and, and actually find that there was a portion written by Jeremiah, but there's also a portion written by Moses that the writer of Chronicles is writing. It's actually something that Matthew does in his gospel, and he quotes Zechariah specifically in chapter 27, yet at the same time alludes to Jeremiah's prophecy from chapter 19, and, and says, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and, and so you have several examples in the, in the scriptures, both Old Testament and New, where there is a particular source referenced, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or what have you, and then there's something added to it. Um, it seems to be a literary technique. Um, different from what we would do, although I, I was thinking earlier this week, maybe an example of something like this um, right out of, our, uh, out of our culture might be that if you read a headline and it stated you know, that Sarah Huckabee Sanders reported today that the economic picture is bright and unemployment is, a 49, is at a 49-year low, and everybody says, well, that's actually a little bit of good news, right? And then you go back and do a little more research, and you listen to her news conference from earlier in the day as she meets with all the White House press, 
and, and you find out that she didn't actually say both of those things in the conference, but actually one of those pieces of information came out of the White House press office, but it wasn't actually Sarah Huckabee Sanders who said it. Now, would you say that uh, the writer of that particular article uh, had been deceptive or, or go to that extreme? No, you just say that, well, it comes out of uh, the, the press office, right? And I think there's probably a similar thing going on here. I don't think it's that Mark is unaware that Malachi is part of the source and he just got it wrong. I think there's a little bit of a, of, of a Near Eastern literary technique or device that is being employed. I do think that verse 3, I, and that is Mark's specific quotation of Isaiah 40, uh, verse 3 is maybe the, the high point that he wants to get to. Uh, because what follows right after this is that John is this very special messenger. So I send my messenger before your face. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I want you to think about that designation, the voice or even a voice of one crying in the wilderness. I think it's interesting that while Mark introduces John the Baptist to us, he doesn't allow us to think this moment is about John the Baptist. He's actually just a voice from the Lord. If you study out the life of John the Baptist, you find that he never forgot his place. There's a very tender story that John includes in his gospel, uh, John, the, John the Baptist, John, um, clarify this, John the Apostle wrote the gospel, John the Baptist is in the gospel, so two different Johns. But John the Baptist in his ministry had developed quite a following, and there were men who, who actually were his disciples. And in John's gospel, chapter 3, there's a moment that's captured there where some of John the Baptist's disciples come back to him and say, look, everybody's going after Jesus. Even some of those disciples that John the Baptist had in his own care and under his own ministry. And rather than becoming defensive and trying to hold on to his market share of disciples, available disciples, he actually says in John 3, verse 30, he, that is Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. That's the humble perspective of one who says, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. That is a voice trying to point people to the one who really matters. And as I encounter things like that, I think, oh, Lord, I'm so convicted in my heart because so much of my life is really about me, of, of building my own following or having my own support network or having my own dreams and ambitions realized. And you know, Jesus is the only one who matters, isn't he? And when we are called into right relationship with him, one of the things that we will do is to serve him and be a voice in our own day saying to the world around us, you need to see Jesus. You need to see Jesus. So John is a special messenger, but he proclaims, a very special message. Now let's talk about this message for a moment. I think this is the substance. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. What is that all about? What does this phrase mean? 
I think the next verse, verse 4, is actually what helps us to understand what preparing the way of the Lord and making his path straight is all about. So Mark now writes, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism of, or as one author writes, with a view of repentance. Because we don't, if you study baptism throughout the scriptures, um, and I know there are some who, who would see this a little differently, but I think they're on shaky ground. The baptism itself is never the thing that gets you repentance. It's a sign of your repentant heart. It's a sign of your believing heart. It's certainly commanded of the Lord, but that's part of the reason we want to make sure we understand this, that the baptism doesn't accomplish your, uh, your, your forgiveness from God. It is a sign of repentance. Now, how about that word repentance? What is that about? Oops. Repentance, in its simplest expression, has to do with a change of thinking. But when you look at Scripture, it always goes beyond just a change of thoughts. It, it, it turns into a change of living. So you can say that you're repenting of your sin, but if you actually never change anything about your sin, you're not repenting. It, it may take time for you uh, to work out your repentance, but it's more than just a change of mind. One of the passages that is really helpful is 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Now listen to some of the things that characterize repenting people. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, probably he means indignation over sin, like, I can't believe I did that, can't believe I said that, what fear it produced. And that's a sense of holy awe, awe in the presence of God, awe that he would forgive us and cleanse us for our sins. He goes on to say, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Again, not innocent that they didn't sin to begin with, but actually saying what, the way you have responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he sent people like me to confront you of your sin, and you turned away from that, and you began to live differently, and you were living with a zeal and a sense of we, we need to obey God and follow him, all of that is what re godly repentance really looks at. And that's the thing that John the Baptist comes proclaiming because the people that he's speaking to need to change their way. And so making his paths straight has to do with our humbling ourselves of providing the Lord, as one author writes, with a ready access to our hearts and to our lives. See, John's just not talking about, you know, like somebody needs to like make these physical paths in Israel or roadways more accessible so that Jesus can come into these communities and preach and teach and travel about without any hindrance. No, he's talking in spiritual terms and he's talking to people like us whose hearts are often very cluttered. And sometimes we ourselves have put obstacles there that essentially say to Jesus, stay off of the road of my heart. I don't want you to enter. I don't need you. I don't desire you. I, I want nothing to do with you. 
And so this call to prepare the way for the Lord is a call to acknowledge our sin, first of all, and to turn from it. I love the words of one author, William Hendrickson, on this particular point. He says, by God's grace and power to effect a complete change of mind and heart, make straight His paths means that we must provide the Lord with a ready access into our hearts and lives. We must make straight whatever obstacles which we have thrown into His path, such obstructions as self-righteousness and smug complacency. Now, it seems like a really simple and straightforward message, and I know that Mark didn't capture everything. I can't fathom that John the Baptist would just preach, you know, these one or two sentences over and over again. But look at the text again, because what happens in response is really quite remarkable. Verse 5 says, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And there's another really significant theological term, isn't it? It's the same term that we encountered two weeks ago as we wrapped up the One Another series and and came to James 5 where God teaches us that we ought to be a people who confess our sins one to another and pray for one another so that we would be healed. Well, it's the same terminology that is being used here. It denotes that these are people who acknowledge their sin and renounce their sinful ways and are seeking the forgiveness that comes from God alone. Now, here's a neat little thing. You say, what's verse 6 all about? Is this telling us that John was just kind of this weird and bizarre character who appears out of the wilderness dressed in camel's hair, wearing a leather belt, and he has a pretty strange menu? No, if you did a little research into this, you'd just find out that he actually was attired much like any other wilderness nomad would be attired. And apparently that, that diet of locusts and honey was not uncommon either. It seems weird to us. I mean, the honey part, not so much, but the locust thing for sure. Um, But there are many people even today uh, who make a regular diet of those things. I had an opportunity to travel to Zambia uh, several years ago and speak uh, in a seminary, spend a week with um, some men from all over that particular region, and every day they made lunch on site, and it it was always a delight. But one particular day, uh, they had actually um, fried up some grubs, and they loved them. I mean, it was like, I mean, the way I feel about filet mignon, I think, is the way that those brothers were feeling when they saw that, you know, big spread of these fried up caterpillars. And of course, they all wanted to know, are you going to eat them? Oh, you must, ha- you must have some. And, and my friend who had invited me was like, Actually, this is, this is a big deal here, so you, you better eat some. And so I did, and um, it wasn't terrible. I mean, it's not like a gag reflex kicked in, but it was also one of those things where like, you know what, I, I don't think I'll ever seek that out again. <laughs> I mean, it was, you say, so what did it taste like? Um, no, it didn't taste like chicken. Uh, I wish it had. It tastes more like Burned popcorn. I mean, it was just kind of a, it was what it was. But they delighted in it. Now, I know from our perspective, it seems a little strange, doesn't it? 
Um, but if you've had opportunity to travel outside of your community or this country, you know that there's just different stuff around the world. That's all this is. It's just different. I think God is trying to say that his special messenger was a weird character. Actually, what it, it does raise a little point that I just threw out there for your devotional thought. His, his lifestyle uh, and even those choices that he made of what he wore and what he ate were very ordinary. So there was nothing about that that would get in the way of his message, really. And as I was meditating on this over the last several days, I thought, you know what? What lifestyle choices am I making? And do any of them create an obstacle or barrier for the people I'm called to be a voice to, to hear Jesus or hear about him? You know, you could dress in such fine attire that people can never hear the gospel because all they, all they see is, wow, that, you, you have amazing clothing. Do you want people to be amazed with your wardrobe or do you want people to be amazed with Jesus? You could also dress so far behind the times that people are amazed for a different reason. <laughs> and there are various groups throughout our country, aren't they? Some even in the state of Utah, some, you know, just scattered here and there who, who are backwards in the way they dress. And if they came to you, you, you would not be able to hear even ordinary conversations. You'd be like, wow, who, who dresses like that? I think it's one of those points for us to just consider, do my lifestyle choices reinforce the message of Jesus Christ. At minimum, they should not get in the way of it. You say, so how do I dress strategically? I think probably just figure out what the ordinary norms in your community are and just kind of find that middle place. Someone shared with me years ago, and I, I tried to find the quotation, I can't, because I, my memory is that my friend was quoting, you know, maybe one of the old Puritans or, um, you know, some godly saint from years ago, but essentially that Christians shouldn't be the first one into new fashion, and they shouldn't be the last ones out of it either. I thought, that's pretty good. Our lives aren't about what we wear or what we eat but there is a place for those things, even as we seek to voice the gospel. Well, the last thought for you this morning, and, and we'll be done, we'll finish today right here. John's preaching creates a heightened expectation for the arrival of Jesus. Oh, look at verses seven and eight. He preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now the testimony has been that the whole area is going out to him. I mean, hundreds and thousands apparently are coming to John. His message is so compelling. And the power of the Holy Spirit is on this man. People are acknowledging their sinfulness, confessing it. They are then being baptized as a testimony of the fact that they have turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet he says, 
After me comes one who is mightier than I. Can you imagine the expectation that began to build in Israel at that time? They're saying, if we've seen a movement of God like this, what in the world is about to come upon this place? And for Jews in particular, they'd be thinking, he's announcing the coming of Messiah. And many of their minds went to the political implications of that, thinking, finally we'll kick the Romans out of this land, reclaim it. The king, the great king of David that God promised from long ago will reestablish Israel as an international superpower. His kingdom will never come to an end. And so they have political aspirations. And some of them are, are thinking about those other texts that say he will come and judge the world and, and his winnowing fork will be in his hand. And they're thinking not only is he going to kick the Romans out, but all the evildoers that are around us are finally going to get their comeuppance. Oh, where is this Jesus? All kinds of expectations. And yet Jesus will come not as that political leader that some are hoping for. And he's not going to come as the iron-fisted judge of the earth as others are longing for at that, at that moment, he's going to come, first of all, to rescue and redeem sinners. That's the expectation and anticipation I want you to hold in your heart as we now begin to make our way through the Gospel of Mark. Do you have that expectation? That even on a daily basis, as you open the Word of God, you will encounter this one who is mightier than John the Baptist? Have you ever asked... What does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Have you ever longed for something more? In the Gospel of Mark, it's coming. And it's not just in these pages. It's embodied in Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings good news and is the good news. Let's pray together. Father, many of us know the gospel account of Mark and have read through the stories and encountered the teaching of Jesus. Others here are brand new to it, but would you bring all of us kind of to that sweet starting place again? where we may hear him as he is. And at this moment, would you bring your Holy Spirit's illumination into our hearts that, that we may rightly assess if our hearts are a prepared way for the Lord. Dear friends, is your heart open to Jesus Christ? And would you too, like those who heard John the Baptist, repent of any sin which creates an obstacle for the Lord Jesus to enter and establish his dominion and authority? Say, how do I do that? Well, first of all, you just acknowledge that it's there. And then you just, you call out to God. You say, God, I, I've sinned against you. I've put up barriers to keep Jesus out. And probably along, along that same line, you've put up barriers to keep other people out. But you just say, Lord Jesus, would, would you come and clear away any sin that keeps me from knowing you, from being in relationship with you? 
as I should. I, I want my heart to be prepared in the same way that John the Baptist preached. Prepare the way of the Lord. And if your heart is characterized by humble confession and sincere repentance, that's all God's asking for. Some of you were there, maybe one time long ago, but it's been a long time. You know, just call out to the Lord. He's so eager to forgive. He stands before you right now with heart and arms open wide. He wants you. Come to him. These are some of the first marks of true followers of Jesus, and they are marks that need to characterize our lives. So Lord God, would you continue that work in us? Forgive us. Renew and remake us. Prepare us. And as we go deeper into the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, oh, just transform us. Bring all the mighty power and glory and sovereignty of Jesus Christ to bear upon our souls. We want to know the fullness of life in Him. We want to know the power that comes from Holy Spirit baptism. We want to know the power in effectiveness in evangelizing our friends and our neighbors who do not know you. We want to see the kingdom of Christ come right now, right here in this place. So as you taught us to pray, Lord Jesus, we pray again this day, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.